Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Thursday, June 8th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? Well, the sky's not on fire where I am currently, so that's an improvement from 24, 48 hours ago, and Mm. that is probably not the last time I say that this summer. Uh, So that puts me in a complex mood. How are your feelings and air pollution levels down there? I think we're sitting moderate right now. Uh, I've only been outside once in the last 48 hours, so Mm -hmm. couldn't quite tell you. The joys and benefits and side effects of remote work is you don't have to commute anywhere, but at the same time, would be nice to go outside and, uh, yeah, had practice indoors today, so really have been avoiding taking in any of the air pollution, but crazy stuff. I don't know if you've seen the photos of of New York City there. Yeah, I almost feel bad complaining too much because as annoying as we got it, it was nothing in Montreal as apocalyptic or Armageddon mm-hmm. scene. Like the worst was a kind of tatooine sun first thing in the morning where 9am kind of looked more like a sunset. But yeah, the photos of orange skies I've seen in Ottawa, New York. Yeah. Uh, I saw one in Kingston. Toronto looked like it wasn't great either. Yeah. Um, a new it, it, a new flavor of summer for me personally. Yes, it's something we haven't really experienced to this degree ever that I can remember. Um, no, it's always been a West Coast thing. We yeah. hear stories. I think Vancouver got it pretty bad two summers ago. Mm-hmm. But here on the East Coast, and not just for Canada, but America seemed just by virtue of having far more people to have gotten the worst of this. Yeah, and... There's a whole political and scientific side of things that we probably don't want to jump into. I just know personally a big event coming up in Virginia Beach that is still likely going to run. Um, I'm just concerned for all the folks out there who have to be outside or work in jobs that require them to be outside. Just make sure you're taking care of yourselves. Well, one upside of the pandemic is more people than before have masks in their home. I certainly busted some out, which I haven't touched in over a year, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Uh, but it's nice to have them at the disposal. Didn't wear one today when I went outside, but, um, yeah, not, not, not as bad here as it is in some other places. Another benefit of, of, of the smog is it forces you to stay inside and consume the world of sports. There we go. A lot going on as we continue our run into really the golden months of sports where we've got the NBA finals, the NHL finals, the French Open all happening, uh, plenty of other action around the periphery. I know we're going to hit the 40-minute mark today, Mm. so let's get right into it with the NBA finals. Um, Going into game three. The Miami Heat in a series where they're heavy underdogs and everyone is discussing it as a matter of when and how rather than if the Denver Nuggets win the cup. Uh, The Heat take the first one for the Nuggets at home. They snap a seven straight game winning streak by the Nuggets. And 
moving into game three, very early on, they come out aggressively, they come out with great offense, and I think they play a game worthy of a team that's won the Eastern Conference and made it to the NBA Finals. Um, but the Nuggets wrestle back the momentum, uh, show why they have been ever increasing in the public's mind as the powerhouse of this playoffs. And for me, the main takeaway from this was just the urgency that they got Jokic and Murray involved in the two-man game for big stretches of time when it mattered. Um, game one of this playoffs, I, I don't think Jokic had a shot on net in the first quarter, and that's its own kind of special, the ball sharing, the determination to get everyone involved. But this is certainly, and like I love the multi-narrative, versatile superstar. I don't think there's just one way. You don't always have to have that Mamba mentality, but you need to show you can do it at times. And like just the start of the first quarter and in the third quarter, uh, two first to match and stay on par with a Heat team who came out really, really hot in this game three, and second to build and maintain a gap in that third quarter. Um, when your two stars put up more than 30 points and 10 assists each, I don't know how many and points both that got tracks. a 30 point triple double. First yeah. teammates to ever do that. I, I don't know how many finals. points that is, like, because it was a lot of two man games. So I don't think that's 30 points, 30 points, and then 40 separate points in a 109 point scoring game, but minimum 80, I'd say. Like, well, they generated. were. They were 40 for their first 45 points they had scored or assisted on. Yeah. So do you imagine it's 90 of the 109 yeah. points? Yeah. It was it was a massive game for both of those players. And yeah, Jokic, first player to ever do 30, 20, and 10 in an NBA Finals game. He has three of the five 30, 20, 10 uh, games in NBA playoff history. He's just arrived. He's doing it now on the highest stage and was phenomenal last night and unstoppable. And the Heat, there was so much made of them turning him into a scorer, but he had the potential to have more assists. The Nuggets just weren't making open shots. Uh, and so I thought they just made the open shots for one, uh, but but did make the adjustments. And, and the two massive things that stood out to me in this game versus game two was was the Nuggets' intensity on both ends of the floor, primarily the defensive end. They competed. They chased shooters around. Uh, they stuck to guys a lot better in those split actions that gave them so much trouble in Game 2. Uh, they really worked on staying close to those shooters, and and they forced Miami into a lot of mid-range shots or, or tougher shots, and um, Jimmy Butler was having success when anyone not named Aaron Gordon was on him. But Aaron Gordon stuck to him for a lot of that first half. And he had he had got going, but it was on 6 of 15 shooting. And if you're Denver, you'll take that inefficiency uh, all the time. Because for Butler, especially, it's usually twos over threes when he's, when he's making shots. So uh, defensive intensity was great from Denver throughout the entire game. They kept that in through the fourth, even when Miami had a couple of bursts near the end. Uh, they, they took care of business. And then the other one, which kind of contributes to the defensive intensity, was was Michael Porter Jr., who hasn't shown up yet in this finals. 
I don't know if that concerns or excites Nuggets fans because you expect him probably have one game where he goes off on on the offensive side, but he they stuck with him in the second half of game two. And then tonight they went to Christian Brown, who was awesome and and had a, a mini run by himself attacking the through the Miami zone and, and making great cuts off the ball and playing great defense on the other end, which could not be said for Michael Porter Jr. I mean, he had a brief stretch. This is how low I have been on him in the finals so far as I said, wow, it was a really good stretch for MPJ where he contested a three running around a screen chasing Max Strews and then got an offensive rebound jump ball uh, with with Gabe Vincent on, on the offensive end. So kind of two hustle plays. And then he proceeded to lose the jump ball to Gabe Vincent where he's probably has six inches on him. So just, yeah, it, he, he falls asleep at the wheel sometimes and he doesn't necessarily keep the ball moving around on the offensive end, which is especially what you need when, when Miami goes to the zone. And so I thought it was a great adjustment to go Christian Brown, more Bruce Brown in game three and and the nuggets made the adjustments and had the intensity throughout to, to get a massive game three win. I've definitely liked bursts of playmaking from him. Uh, as a whole, there have been times where the Nuggets have just always made the right pass and seemed to generate an open three on pretty much every possession. And he's been an integral part of that at times, but I can't say I've noticed him's name at all. This finals, maybe except for some of that playmaking I'm discussing in game Two one. Two points in game three. Two points. Yeah. And I think part of that it boils down to how effective Aaron Gordon has been. And mm-hmm. when you already have Jokic and Murray as focal points, and then you add Gordon's size advantage in the post, um, the only thing your offense really has left, or like the last two players remaining on the court can do, is spot up in a corner and be there for the shooting threat. Um, and I think it's a credit to the Nuggets offense that they haven't settled for that when there are easier points to be had in the post with the size and speed advantage coming from Jokic and Gordon or Murray. Um, So it's a good problem to have that one of your higher end scorers talents have been unneeded as of yet, but like everyone who follows the Nuggets does seem to hold their breath every series for just one game of 20, 25, 30, where he's just knocking down a lot of contested shots with that height and particularly efficient from the open clip rate. Yeah, no, it's it's something that you're still waiting for him to arrive in the series. He hasn't yet. And I think he's got a pretty tight leash moving forward into these next couple of games. If, if he's not going early, you're going to see more of Christian Brown because... He's a dude who won a national championship with Kansas last year and has played in some some big games. And uh, he wasn't afraid. He went right at Jimmy Butler. He went right at Bam Adebayo and and then the other smaller defenders of Miami um, and, and was really impressive. And this would have been the Christian Brown game had Jamal Murray and Jokic not both gone for 30-point triple-doubles. So just overall fantastic production from those two. And that's really the key story. And Miami's going to have to go back to the drawing board there were times when they were blitzing the screen and getting the ball out of Murray's hands. And that generated a couple of turnovers, 
but other times the Nuggets set it up a little bit better so that Murray was in the middle of the floor, was able to find Jokic, and then from there, you're never stopping Jokic when it's four on three. So, Yeah, I, I mean, at times the zone and the double teams and the help defense looked flawless and perfect. And I think the Heat had three turnovers this whole game. Uh, I, I thought Duncan Robinson, Cody Martin, Max Struess were fine in their supporting cast. I thought Bam Adebayo was as offensively consistent as you can hope for. He grabbed 17 rebounds, was fine defensively, like as much as any mere mortal can be against Jokic. I think Butler has shown that he certainly can be, play better in the playoffs, so I wouldn't bet against him to... Mm-hmm not do that i'm a little lost in the negatives here but like i can certainly see jimmy butler elevating his game and elevating his ceiling but overall it felt like that was a really good game for the miami heat and they did a lot right but the nuggets still by three quarters in managed to not keep it close and really executed one of their biggest priorities in winning the fourth quarter or at least not collapsing in the fourth quarter uh so going into this game four it it feels like must win for miami if you're 3-1 and going to denver i think this series is over um but if the nuggets play like they did again like it's gonna take something like that with butler dropping 40. yeah it's you could you know miami's you're gonna get their grittiest effort in this next one and it's going to be very much along the lines of, of the Boston series. And so if you're Denver, again, you can't sit back like you did after game one. It has to be even greater intensity going into game four. And and I can't wait. We've had a couple of extra days in between these first three games, but we do get uh, game four on Friday and game five on Monday. So looking forward to catching up on the rest of the finals then. Looking forward to that, though I can't lie. These two weeks, my attention and heart really have been stolen by the French Open. Oh, and it's been fantastic tennis. Uh, like Australia, hard to get into with the time zone difference. So you yeah. have to go all the way back to the US Open. That was a bit more tumultuous of a time period for me. I didn't really get to dig in, particularly in the second week. So it's been really since Wimbledon that I've really gotten to dig in and enjoy Grand Slam tennis. Oh, how I've missed it. And we're in the top and bottom half. Uh, very narrow. The men's semifinals happening tomorrow. The women's semifinals having finished today with the finals matchup set for Saturday. So just starting on the men's, there have been so many fantastic matches. Uh, we talked a little about the first and second round last pod. Uh, in the third round, like Zverev, TFO, a really fun one in the fourth you had uh rune serendulo playing the quarters were fantastic as i'll get to in a second um so that the bottom half and then in the top half Djokovic and alcaraz just marching through to set up which I, what i'm gonna say is the most hyped tennis match of 2023 to date and it likely could stand that way till the end just in terms of what this tournament means for Novak Djokovic in terms of legacy, what 
the big picture of the tennis world looks like right now um, with the way this showdown between Alcaraz and Djokovic has been teased and slowly set up over the last year and a half uh, with the court being clay being Alcaraz's best surface so far, even though the one he won the Grand Slam on was the U.S. hard court. Um, and with the way they've each played at this French Open, both incredibly dominant, incredibly effective, showing their game to be so suited for this biggest stage, these five-set matches with so much pressure against top-level opponents in different ways. Uh, starting with Alcaraz, we talked about how he had a pretty difficult draw looking up from the second round onwards. Uh, he had to face Shapovalov. Never know what you're going to get there. Lorenzo Musetti, who had a really great showing against Cam Nori and was 1-0 in their head-to-head -head, and then looked likely to face Stefano Tsitsipas, who's been to Roland Garros finals before, plays his best surface, and he was at the Australian Open finals. Um, the head-to-head -head record on that one in Alcaraz's favor for sure going in, but not the easiest third through quarters run. But Alcaraz breezed it, though. Uh, straight sets against Chapo, straight sets against Musetti, straight sets against Tsitsipas. Very few moments of danger and always a rise in level to overcome whatever dip he presented. And doing it in straight sets just means like he was never out of them, always had a break in him. Um, Self-described as having the completeness of his game a massive advantage. And we've seen that in different ways, like against Chapo, both of them tricksters, but Alcaraz just with such sturdier foundations to weather the tricks and to set up even more, uh, just some like really strong, aggressive, flawless tennis against Musetti after he poked the bear a little, getting broken early. And then you didn't know what you were going to get in the City Pass match. He'd been pretty solid all tournament. Um, the Grand Slam stage, like always a different variable. And some people wondered if the experience under the Greek's belt would help him. And Carlos just ran through him in the first two sets. So like 6-2, 6-1, I think. So like he, Stefanos won his first service game in that second set. And then it was effectively a 6-0 bagel from there. There was an interesting moment in the third set where the beautiful tennis crowd, as always, cheered only for themselves to get more tennis, which is particularly a theme in these night matches where there's only one match. So there's no effect of like, just get on to the next one, or we've already been here for so long. They're just watching one match, so they always want it to go one set longer. So they really started trying to get behind uh, Sitsi Bass, who was down a break, cheered him on to break back and um, save some match points, send it to a tie break. And Alcaraz was able to steady the ship, end it there and not have any questions asked in the fourth set. So plays two sets of incredibly dominant. He called some of the best tennis of his career stumbles, but then picks himself back up and doesn't make life any harder than it has to be uh, with a fourth set. And then you have Novak Djokovic competing for his 23rd Grand Slam. Dropped one set 
all tournament so far. That against Karen Kachinov, who going into this matchup one and eight against Djokovic played some of the best tennis I've seen him play over two hours and came out of it without having faced a break point and tied one one in sets uh, after breaking once in the first set, going to a tie break and then. Do they call it a bagel if you take the tiebreak 7-0? Uh, Djokovic just flipped some switch, swept that tiebreak, and then proceeded to commit one unforced error en route to a 6-1 victory in the third set, where he proceeded to go up a break, look clear, double fault a break point into handing it back even on serve, and then win eight straight points to take the match. Um all tournament there have been moments of dips moments of not great play he'd managed to similarly to as i described as alcaraz right the ship in a way that let him not play any extra sets kachanov came out too good in that first set he was hitting the ball aggressively he was moving really well to it uh and just forcing Djokovic to play at a level that he wasn't in a place to be at but Djokovic able to slowly rise to that level able to constantly ask questions of Kachanov and run out the legs of a player who had had a somewhat busier, harder strength of schedule up to that point. Um, just the tactics, the brilliance, the chess play, and the fact that this is the win winningest player ever when down one or two sets at a grand slam, all been in his favor in that match at throughout the tournament. So what does that set up? The most hyped match of 2023, <laughs> man. Like it's... It's number one versus new number one. Thank you. Yeah. And you don't know, like Alcaraz has come out a bit hotter, a bit more aggressively, Djokovic a bit colder at the start. Um, but as I said, he just having more sets to play is an advantage at the, that level with that kind of self-belief. They've played one song clay before. Alcaraz was able to win that. Um, but on this stage, it feels so much more important. My plan was actually not to talk that long about this match because uh, by the time this goes up, it won't be that far from the match actually having happened. Oh, well, um, needless to say, I'm incredibly excited for it. Um, I hope that doesn't put a damper on the bottom half of the draw, which will see Zverev and Kasper Rudd play each other in the night match. Both of players reached the semifinals, Rudd reaching the finals at last year's French Open, and have had in different ways disappointing seasons ever since. Maybe you can make the argument not for Rudd reaching the ATP finals and the US Open finals, uh, just never taking that last step in the big moments. Uh, he has a much easier time with Holger Rune than I thought he would. Had a couple of stumbles and small challenges, but I don't think any match points saved or anything too adversarial for him. And Alex Zverev looks like he's been slowly fine-tuning and returning to that form he was in last time he was at this tournament in the semifinals. Uh, that serve has just been monstrous at times. Uh, the forehand and backhand have both been solid. The double faults have not been his friend, but not been tactical nightmares that he can't overcome. Really excited to see that style of play contrast. Uh, for my money, I just think the extra firepower advantage that Zverev has is going to do him more favors and more rallies and be the difference. 
Um, really quick, other notes from the tournament. We don't get the dream matchup on the WTA tour. Oh, this... I don't know how many times you've heard the name Swachik, Sabalenka, Rubikina in the past year and a half, but they're starting to become more and more frequent, uh, responsible for the last five, I think, Grand Slams. Uh, Sabalenka taking the Australian, Swachik taking the US, Rubikina taking Wimbledon, and Swachik having taken clay uh, won a lot. I think all of the Masters tournaments so far this year. Don't quote me on that. Nonetheless, Rubikina had to withdraw due to illness earlier on in the tournament, and Sabalenka loses a hard-fought, uh, much credit to her opponent, Karolina Machova, semifinals match. Iga Swachik has been showing Rafa-like dominance on these grounds over the last few years, um, has not dropped a set yet four bagel sets i think dropped like the lowest number of games since a player in the 90s on route to the semis plays her first hard-fought match in the semis though and that means she had to go to one tie break after winning the first set 6-2 so it's a hard sell that this is going to be a super compelling finals on the women's side uh, but just take a moment to appreciate the dominance we've seen from swashik so far Maybe I'm making a fool of myself here. I certainly never count anyone out who makes it to the finals of a Grand Slam. Uh, mostly just want to plant the seed. Like Remember those three names because the more frequently you hear them at the big events on the WTA, the more exciting the tour gets over the next few months. And then let's end the tennis talk segment with some CanCon. Shout out to the Canadian tennis girls for making it far into the French in some categories we don't talk about or think about too often. Bianca Andriscu today plays the mixed doubles final, falls short. Leila Annie Fernandez will be playing against Coco Goff and Jessica Pagula, two big singles players in the top 20, I believe, on the women's side of the tour. Uh, that semifinals will happen about seven hours from now, so it will already be underway, if not over, by the time this podcast airs. Uh, but nice to see some Canadians making it far somewhere at such a big event. So yeah, it's been a fantastic tournament. I always get to the end of these uh, breathless states feeling, wondering if I did it uh, justice. Um, but some really incredible matches have gone on and been loving the Grand Slam tennis. Awesome. Yeah. It's something about Canadian tennis players. They're pretty solid at doubles, right? We had Daniel Nestor for a number of years. And then uh, I know Vashik Pospisil had some success in doubles as well. So seems to be passing along down the line here uh, as, as the women are now taking their turn with some double success. So Best of luck to Layla here as we get closer to the end of the tournament. And we'll turn our attention back home to North America for the Stanley Cup Finals. Game 3 currently happening as we speak. I believe it's 1-1 at the end of the first period. The Florida Panthers are in tough here at home as they try to claw their way back into this series. And they just are facing a different team than they have in the past. I mean, Boston's tough. Uh, I wouldn't call them the largest team, though. Toronto, definitely not the largest team. And then, of course, 
Uh, Carolina, not the largest team either. This Vegas team is tough to push around. They have some big bodies, right? Colasar, uh, and then in the back end, right? They've, they've got all dudes over 6'2", 200 pounds that can make mince meat. I think the lineup they had for game one, only Jonathan Marchessault was under six feet in the lineup, right? They just, they ran out this big, mean team and Florida has been having tough time with it, right? They don't have that easier escape from their own zone that they did against these other teams that sent in smaller forwards, right? They're getting crunched. We saw it. Gudis taking some, some, some punishment and then, uh, and then they can't establish the, physicality that they could in the other series and it's resorted to them being a little bit dirty um we've seen sam bennett back at his old ways and and matthew kachuk uh trying to get in there but three misconducts in two games is never a great thing for your best player and and vegas has just frustrated the panthers time and time again game was four two i think or four one but was well over by the time we reached the third period, just with the number of penalties that Florida was continuing to take and they lost their composure and things got a little bit physical and Vegas was up to the task. And so if you're Florida here, you got to be worried about the response that Vegas has given you. You got to make an adjustment and then you do have to get that same level of production that Bobrovsky was giving you in the first three rounds as he is getting outplayed right now by Aiden Hill. And so, uh, fascinating to see if the hot streak is finally coming t- to an end for sergey but can't can't count out this florida team because they've made a miraculous run to get here but uh things all looking the way of las vegas right now and you just think about the tremendous success this team has had from the get-go and the consistency mm-hmm. of it over the last few years and it, success in the playoffs does seem to rhyme in the NHL. Uh, I I think about what the Panthers are doing, kind of as what the Habs and Carey Price did a couple years ago, yep. where kind of out of nowhere, your goaltender just turns it on for three rounds, but then that often does run out of gas at, yep. at some point. And when that pillar that's been your support at times that maybe you didn't even realize there there was a period or two in a swing game where they just stood on their head in retrospect and won that for you and from there you were able to gather momentum Uh, when you take that pillar out just to struggle and the amount of this vegas roster that has experienced uh that run to the finals, that run to the conference finals against the Habs. Uh, you just feel like the determination and the know-how to get there and to get over that final mountain is going to be a huge advantage against these Panthers who um, again are like mirroring other forms of playoff mm-hmm. success where you have that President's Trophy season, you contend, you get stuck in the first, second rounds, and then you have this big burst over the hump for sure uh but even still once you get there the finals are a new creature a new battle to be conquered where they are relatively untested when is it the leaf's turn is my question (laughs) while these uh greater miami area teams have some struggle in the finals things are still looking up for the city for the fans if you are in miami and uh, for their economy overall, as 
massive international news comes down yesterday with the announcement that Lionel Messi has been acquired by Inter Miami FC and will be joining the club in late July. It's massive news. He turned down $1.6 billion from a Saudi Arabian club to come to Miami. It had been rumored a, a little bit in the past, and then there was rumors that he was headed to Barcelona, but he is making the move to the MLS who, I mean, there's so many places to touch on this, right? The messy effect. Ticket prices go from minimum $29 to $450 for his debut. And you think about the uh, Latin American presence in yeah. Miami. I know oh. there's a lot of Brazilians there, obviously a lot of Cubans. Um, it just makes it a generally attractive place for anyone like of Hispanic, South American, Latin origin. Yep. Uh, you imagine there's got to be a huge untapped soccer market there. Oh, 100%. And, and he already owns some real estate in Miami. So just closer to being able to manage that. And then you think of the social media following. In the span of 24 hours, they went from 1 million followers to the most followers on Instagram of any North American professional sports team. You fucking shit. What? Five mil. Any? Dallas More than like Cowboys any NFL are, team. Dallas Cowboys are at 4.5. What the actual... Holy shit. It's the Messi effect, man. Why aren't we making every episode about Messi? What have we been that, doing? That's we, what I'm saying. We need it's... to fire our content planners, and I know we're the content planners. <laughs> it's just it's just a whole different breed of celebrity. <laughs> and Wow. David Beckham, what a move, right? He gets into the league. He asks for ownership. And during the expansion, he gets a discounted rate on buying a team. He chooses Miami as the market. And now he's landed Lionel Messi, and the club's now valued at over $600 million. Like, what a what a money move from him. And even though Messi turned down the 1.6, there's a huge opportunity for the growth of the MLS here with him arriving on the scene. And he is getting a cut of the Apple streaming services after Apple bought the streaming rights to all MLS games uh, this season. And Messi will be getting a cut of that. He's getting a cut in of the merchandise, and I'm sure he's getting a cut of the tickets as well. And so he sees it as a bet on himself and a growth opportunity that could be even more prosperous potentially than Saudi, which seems unfathomable. But it's an unbelievable move. It shocked the football world. And all I know is that when tickets go on sale next season for when Inner Miami's coming to Toronto, because they, they're not this year, it's going to be hotcakes. Like every market that he goes to is going to be chaos. And I think it's going to unlock a lot of untapped potential for the popularity of soccer in the U.S. And for me, the most interesting part of this story has to be tied to the biggest story of the sports week, which we have not touched on. Um, the context of the PGA LIV yes. golf tours merging a lot of analysis and a lot of discussion, most of which pretty unanimous in condemning the hypocrisy on the quick turnaround yeah, from PGA uh, ownership. And so, and the interesting takeaway from that for me was just how unsuccessful the Saudi tour had been and how this really is just them muscling and buying their way into golf ownership. 
And so in the context of that, I see this messy decision as a really big sign for all soccer players to consider and follow. And I mean, look, they, the Saudis have already gotten their foot into the football world with mm. uh, PSG, I think Manchester City. And then, of course, the Cristiano Ronaldo signing and Kareem yes. Benzema, which came through this week as well. Um, but but just you see that the strategy is the more of the talent they acquire and the more they can take of the share, the stronger their negotiating position becomes to ultimately just get a permanent slice of the revenue uh, is their economic planning. As you said at the start, we try not to get too political here, um, but I think we can just stop and celebrate that this one negotiating uh, lever that doesn't fall into their hands. It's just super exciting for me that he's arriving. I think the average American knows Messi, but doesn't appreciate how much higher of a level international soccer is and international celebrity is. And they're getting a taste of that with now inter Miami FC being the greater social media presence than the Dallas Cowboys <laughs> who basically own the U S I cannot wrap my head. Uh, and, and, and it's just great for the MLS in general because yeah, he's like a, one more player coming over from these leagues for a retirement tour. And like, it's just going to keep signaling and encouraging that decision. It's so much greater than anyone they've gotten in the past, right? This is, this is the mm-hmm. white whale of all white whales. And yeah. so, yeah, it's going to be nuts. It's going to accelerate the growth of American soccer, and it's going to help people truly appreciate how much strong. Like I, he is going to, without a doubt, kill everyone on the pitch, and I can't wait to watch that either. This is Jokic, Giannis, Doncic, uh, and K- KD each picking a team in the Canadian Elite Basketball League <laughs> to sign with and play for. Yeah. Oh, that'd be sick if they joined the Scarborough Shooters. <laughs> Shout out. Actually, I'm picking Jimmy Butler in that league. Like he gets the oh, like you, Scarborough man. You get one superstar on each team to like lead all these teams. <laughs> uh, that'd be a fun month. Maybe something for August. All right, you've got 40 seconds. Oh yeah. Well, AL East continues to be way too strong. Jays are doing well outside of the division, um, and they have demoted Alec Manoa to the minors, so he's got to get things back in shape for when he jumps off and joins the roster again. We'll need him down the home stretch. But that's it for me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Sports have been a pleasure to cover. Looking forward to doing that more. Till then, Sports Next Door, signing out. You get to the station, there's this crazy sound. Hey, man, this ain't no fishing town. That ain't all They're all listening to that same